Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Chewing the Gristle podcast with me, your host, Greg Cock, Gregory Cockery, the Gristle Man, if you will. We have extemporaneous conversations with musical friends from all genres, walks of life, and nostril circumferences. Brought to you by our good friends at Wildwood Guitars in beautiful Louisville, Colorado, and Fishman Transducers of beautiful Andover, Massachusetts. Can you dig it? Today on the show, one of the most soulful slide players, I believe, of all time, my buddy Rick Vito. You've heard him on Like a Rock, one of the most epic slide guitar solos of all time on the Bob Seger hit. He's played with Fleetwood Mac, Bonnie Raitt, John Mayle, you name it, the mighty Rick Vito. Let's go. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we've been starting to do some interviews with some guitar buddies of mine, and I was very excited that Rick Vito agreed to be involved with us, and he is here with us today from his his home down in Tennessee, and uh, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with Rick's activities, and uh, I will just say I'm a huge fan of Rick's and had the pleasure of doing some gigs with him last summer with the band, and was that last summer? It was last summer, right? Yes, yes it was. It was. My brain is... <laughs> and we were hoping to do some more. And uh, But there's lots of stuff to talk about with Rick. Uh, I was very excited when, because um, of course he'd been playing with various um, iterations of the Mick Fleetwood ensembles over the years from Fleetwood Mac to, you know, Mick's Blues Band and so on and so forth. They just did that recent uh, Peter Green tribute concert in uh, London and I was very excited to see that Rick was involved. And if I may be so bold, he was really kind of the glue that held that whole thing together. And it was just so awesome to, to see him in action. So Rick, welcome. Thanks for taking some time with us. How are you doing? I am doing great, man. Good to see you. Good I to like see you too. Drums and the guitars and that awesome color, uh, kind of terracotta color on the walls that matches one of the stripes in your hat. So That's perfectly. right. We're tying it all together, Rick. You have definitely done it, my friend, from a design point of view. How do you have a a signature guitar now in every color of the rainbow? Well, you know what? Most of the colors in the hat are represented at this point, which is is, uh, powerful. (laughs) The whole spectrum of colors to yet to come, I'm sure. Indeed. Well, hopefully. So let's yeah. talk a little bit about your, your most recent trip. Um, describe what it was yeah. like. I mean, I know you had worked with Mick for a while, but there was there was some time there. We spent some time apart. And and um, yeah. next thing you know, you guys were talking and this thing happened. You want to tell us a little bit about that, if you would be so kind? Yeah, we had been uh, talking. That was Mick had this idea to do the, the concert involving a lot of the uh, major English guitar players that uh, love Peter Green style, etc. That uh, they were all in the same circuit together prior to getting famous, and then and then after getting famous, the, the concert circuit, etc. So uh, he'd been talking about that for years, and I guess about uh, two years ago, we sort of went different ways for whatever reasons, and. Uh, and then all of a sudden on Christmas Day, I was surprised by a call from him 
talking about the the upcoming concert that was going to take place at the London Palladium. And some things were talked about and, and smoothed over. And uh, I agreed to go to Maui and and join him in the um, in the rehearsals from the get go. So, um, you know, I, I guess I could tell you the people that were involved in this yes. thing were just an incredible array of guitar players, producers, engineers, filmographers, etc. But some of the other guitar players um, were starting with the uh, rhythm guitar player was Andy Fairweather Lowe. Oh yeah, he's fantastic. band for years, uh, along with uh, um, David Brass, who was the bass player. Bronze, <laughs> gotta get those medals <laughs> clear. <laughs> David Bronze, bass player, brought this band. So. And then Johnny Lang was a part right. of it from the start. And when we got to London, we were joined by Bill Wyman of the Stones, John Mayall, Billy Gibbons, Pete Townsend, David Gilmore. Uh, uh, let's see, um, I don't want to forget him. Zach Starkey on drums. And um, oh, oh, this great guy from Metallica that, that now owns uh, Peter. Kirk Hammett. Kirk, thank you very much. Sorry, Kirk. It's yeah. just when I'm called on to produce a number of names in a row. I, I understand. Like, yeah, but uh, yeah. Ricky Peterson on keyboards. And Get our buddy Ricky Peterson. He's a good man. Yes, yes. I figured you might have known him. Yes. So we had a, just a fabulous band and worked up all those old songs that you and I both loved. Yep. And and I've actually played songs that I had never played before. Uh, songs like Green Man Alishi and Man of the World, which yeah. were songs I felt uh, during the time I was doing the Mick Fleetwood Blues Band that were just a little too personal to Peter. I, I never felt comfortable playing them. But sure. in this uh, environment, they worked out well. I remember uh, uh, Jeremy Spencer talking about Green Monolishi and when, and when he first, Peter first played it for him, he said, I literally saw demons coming out of the speakers. I'm like, wow. <laughs> That's a... Uh, that's when perhaps you got to look at your vitamin regimen and say, what's going on here? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Speaking of Jeremy Spencer, he was the surprise guest that evening, showed up uh, and uh, did a couple of Elmore James songs. Uh, yeah, that's, that's cool. But yeah, I mean, it's definitely about being tortured by uh, the dark side. Yes. Yes, the, the whole story of, uh, of Peter Green's, you know, excursion is actually you know and and uh, Danny Kerwin as well another tragic you know story of but you know arguably when those two were together it's like it was hard to I mean you got to know which one was playing but you know Danny Kerwin was no joke I mean he was he was a sort of he had that very distinct vibrato of his own and was uh very much an excellent artist on his own right and had a, a similar fall from grace and tumultuous kind of uh, life afterwards and, an, and also an early, you know, and an early demise, which is unfortunate. But uh, that's why I thought it was interesting that um, Pete Townsend did Station Man, because that was really a Danny Kerwin era. You know, Peter was already yeah. gone by the time, you know, uh, Kiln House came out. True. The, uh, the concert was billed as a Peter a tribute or a, a celebration of the music of Peter Green 
end the early Fleetwood Mac. Okay, cool. So, that's what I figured. That's a great song. I love that song anyway, so I was glad to hear it, you know. Yeah, well, Townsend, uh, apparently, uh, by his own admission, that he talked about on stage, borrowed, shall we say, the riff from that song for one of his own songs that wound up being very successful in The Who. And that's why he wanted to, to do that song and part taste participate in the concert as well. Oh yeah, for probably Don't Get Fooled Again. It's crazy. What do they say? A mediocre musicians borrow and great musicians steal. <laughs> yeah, well, whatever you want to call it, we all borrow from one another. If nobody hasn't borrowed something or a lot. Even B.B. King, you know, to listen to Oh, absolutely. Probably things that B.B. listened to, you know, you know directly where he got it from. Chuck Berry, I never, I, I didn't realize how much he borrowed from, uh, from uh, T-Bone. With Jordan and the Timpani Five, the guitar player's guy's name was Carl Hogan. He's going okay. back to keep up with the riff. That was Carl Hogan. And, and the Rosetta Tharp. I <laughs> got a lot of stuff from her. Yeah. You know, which is amazing to think about. And of course, T-Bone Walker had, had a lot to do with both B.B. King and, and uh, um, Chuck Berry. Well, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, when you first got your start playing, because you were actually a theater major. This is a fascinating story, I think. So you were you were in college studying theater, but you were playing guitar, and then Delaney and Bonnie came, Bonnie came to town with their band. Would you mind telling us that story about how that all kind of happened, and then you yeah. ended up moving out um, to L.A.? First of all, I was a theater major because all my friends were in that program, and, and it was the easiest thing you could do to waste time in college while you're out off playing your guitar every other free hour of the day. It's kind of like so the I, art school with the English guys. The English guys yeah. all went to art school, but they all wanted to just play music. Yeah, yeah. It, it was uh, it was fun. I mean, I, I did get some a lot out of it that I tried to apply to performing music. But... Um, yeah, I, uh, it was the summer of 1970, um, and or the spring of 1970, I was in English class with a young lady I was friendly with, and she said, have you heard of this group that Eric Clapton's playing with? I said, what group? The, the, you mean Blind Faith? She said, no, Delaney and Bonnie and friends. I said, no. She said, I just saw them at the Electric Factory in Philadelphia, and it was amazing. You're going to love this. So I went out and found the record, and she was right. I loved that record. It was a live record. Dave yeah. Mason was on it, uncredited, I think. And George Harrison certainly uh, was uncredited, but also on it. And here was all these luminaries playing with this Lainey and Bonnie. Who were they, you know? Right. And uh, so I then found their their previous record called the original Lainey and Bonnie and Friends. So, these people were, were really tapped into some great stuff. They, they had great guitar playing. They, they covered blues, gospel, you know, R&B. It was just exactly a, a, a kind of a, a, a route that I felt that I could follow musically. And uh, in fact, along with the original Fleetwood Mac, they, those two groups were, were probably 
foremost in my mind as far as direction than I thought I could go. So I kept going out and getting backstage and meeting them and playing them some music I had recorded and, you know, just hanging out. You know, they were nice enough to let me come back. After doing that several times, they asked me one night, do you have your guitar with you? And I said, of course I did. And that in the trunk of my car invited me to sit in with them, uh, which I did. And I knew all their music note for note, of course, having listened to all this stuff. And they sort of turned around like, who is this kid, you know? <laughs> and uh, and it, it was a magic moment and kind of brought the house down. And after the show, they said, well, are you going to, follow us up and try to get into business. I said, that's that's what I want to do. And they said, come to LA, we'll help you get started. And after school in June, I went out there and uh, looked them up and a couple weeks later, they were going on tour and said, do you want to go on tour with us? And I, I did. Yes. <laughs> that, that was my, my official first gig and, and foray into the music business. And I also, uh, I love that story. And I also love the story of your, of your first recording session. Would you mind sharing that story with us? Uh, well, I had two first recording sessions. Uh, one was with Todd Rundgren in New York City. That was, uh, was a friend of mine, Rick Valenti and I. We were writing songs and performing as a duo. And uh, Rick was a friend of Todd's from the neighborhood. Right. Uh, we both grew up in, and we went up to Electric Ladyland Studio, which was Jimi Hendrix Studio. That was our first session and recorded a few things. And one of the songs, we didn't get a record deal, but one of the songs got on a James Cotton record, James oh. Cotton being one of our heroes at the time. Yeah, absolutely. And that was the first real session, professional session I did. My first session with Delaney and Bonnie was at Ike Turner Studio in LA. It was an all night session with just me and Delaney playing a slide and acoustic guitar doing blues and that kind of stuff that they would also do. I guess I'm thinking about your, uh, the Bobby Whitlock, the Bobby Whitlock uh, session. Oh, that session. That was my third session. I think. Okay. <laughs> that was an incredible session. Do you want to hear that story? Yes, please. That's a good one. Uh, after uh, leaving Delaney and Bonnie, which um, which happened after a couple months of working with them because they economic reasons, whatever, uh, I got a call from Bobby and he said, you know, I, I've heard some of your recordings that Bonnie played me and I, I really like what you're doing and I'm going to go into the studio and such and such a day and record a demo and I'd really like you to be a part of it. I said, wow, I'd love to do that. So I went to this recording studio. I had met Bobby in the meantime and went to the studio and the drummer was Jim Keltner, <laughs> who was with, had been on one of those Delaney and Bonnie records, incredible drummer. And uh, the bass player was, um, another luminary of course when called on to produce names i sometimes forget uh but anyway uh we did this song it was a real real raucous rock and roll song and there was big long passages where i got to you know play extensively and do all this playing blah 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 the producer on the session was jimmy miller 
Right. But Jimmy Miller also was producing a group that you may know of called the Rolling Stones. Right. So we get down a track of this song, and it's a pretty wild, raucous, great take of this song. And we're listening back, and uh, as we're listening, the door to the, to the studio opens. Is everybody still with me here? Yes, yeah, sorry. That okay. Uh, the door opens, and in walk Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. So my idols. And, and I was so green and so young. I was just turned 21, I think. And uh, they came in, and everybody's listening back, you know, and I'm sitting there, and I go, oh, my gosh, what do they think? They're listening to me. Oh, this is, I was freaking out. <laughs> so the end of the, the song comes to a close. Keith Richards goes, who's the guitar player? And I, I just, I didn't know what to say. I couldn't speak. I just kind of feebly rose my hand and I said, I am, sir. I don't think I said sir, but I felt that like that. And he said, nice work, mate, nice work. And it was the vindication to this day of my life that my idols, the guy I learned from, right, was heard my playing and, and, singled me out and, and gave me a compliment. So that was my, that was my first kind of experience of, on that level. Well, then the, the follow-up to the story is that you, that was like the demo session, but when you were actually yeah. recording it, it's like the whole thing happened over again, right? Yes. Nine months later, we're in a, a different studio, same producer, same song, finished the track, we're listening back, door opens again, same two guys come in, same thing. Who's the guitar player? <laughs> and Bobby Whitlock says, you've known that guy for nine months, that's the same thing you said before, it's Rick over there. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that kind of thing is just... Uh, <laughs> that's tough of, for, uh, for your book, Rick, when you, you need to write a book with these anecdotes. I'm on that book, yeah. So you went out to LA and you stayed for quite some time and you played with a just a whole bunch of, you know, the, the who's who of kind of the roots, rock, blues tinged, uh, you know, the coterie of the greats, if you will. So what kind of went from there? So you played with Bobby, and for those who aren't familiar, Bobby Whitlock, of course, was in uh, Derek and the Dominoes yes. and uh, was also in Delaney and Bonnie and Friends. And it was on that first uh, Clapton solo record and uh, all that kind of stuff. So after you're playing with Bobby Whitlock and doing stuff, and wh where does it lead from there? Well, it's interesting. My wife and I were just talking about this the other, the other night. It was the fact that Los Angeles at that particular point in history was the, uh, the center of the universe for all major recording. Right. So, Everybody, if they didn't live there, they came there to record and to record with various musicians. So there was an abundance of work, even for a newcomer like me. I got a lot of trickle-down work and met through networking of all these people I was meeting. The level of, of or caliber of, of people that I had an opportunity to work with would, you know, it would take me places I never dreamed of. 
I could uh, venture into. It was just by nature the fact that it was a good place to be if you were pretty good on your instrument and, and you know, meeting people, which I was. I think that's that was the gist of it. So uh, from there, um, I worked, uh, let's see, I worked with Leon Russell, Bon Great, Maria Moldar. I did a lot of gigs, like crazy things, like uh, shows with uh, the, the great DJ Wolfman Jack that allowed me to work with old old groups. And I worked with Little, Little Richard, did I mention him? And, uh, and the next great gig that I got was uh, a call from Larry Taylor, who told me that he was working with John Mayall and John Mayall was looking for a new guitar player and wanted me to go up there with him. So I did, up to John's infamous house in Laurel Canyon and jammed there, went a couple songs with, with John Mayall and uh, you know, he said, okay, you're in. And, and that, uh, was that. that was a, a, a real milestone career gig because of all the guys who I admired, like Clapton and Peter Green and Mick Taylor and uh, others that had followed uh, who worked with John Mayo. That was the gig to have as a guitar player. Right. A rite of yeah. passage to the greats, for the greats. Yeah. 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 So two weeks later, we're in the studio, took time off for Christmas and New Year's, and then went on tour with Mayo in Europe in late January, I believe. So that's how quickly he did things. Sure. You know, we did a record in four or five days, and uh, he was out in the in the marketplace in January or February. So, in when you were out in LA, how much did you front your own band, or were you pretty much centered in on 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 being a supportive person and being uh, more of a sideman type of a situation, or were you also peppering your other stuff with doing your own thing, fronting your own band? Uh First of all, the kind of gigs that I was getting, they, and some of them might have been sideman gigs, but most of them were creative enough, and you were made of uh, a member, sort of more of a member of a band. Yeah. So yeah. It, it didn't really feel like. I mean, I've done sideman gigs, no question about it, here and there. Uh, but uh, to answer your question, I, I believe I started um, doing gigs on my own about 1974. So that was two or three years after arriving there. And um, and there were enough clubs around the area that, uh, that uh, you know, I could do that in. But the fact of the matter was, is a lot of the gigs I was getting were taking me on the road. Like with John Mayall, I was on the road for the most better part of a year. And uh, so, you know, and then you'd get back to town, you'd kind of try to, Make everybody aware you were back in town. Do some some solo work. Try to try to get some more session work. Uh, and you know, at the end of the year, for a guy in his early twenties, it would the bottom line would amount to a year's worth of work. So sure. that's how that's how, how that came about. So uh, all the time recording solo work. You know, I'm sorry. I was just going to ask you about the. Um... What kind of gear were you using back then? I mean, was it uh, was it already one of those things where it was like a given that kind of the I'm, I know it probably was, but it's like okay, we got Les Pauls, we got Strats, we got Tellys, we got three thirty fives. But what was your 
your chosen voice at that point in time? And were you mostly doing slide back then or was it just kind of an equal amount of conventional playing and slide playing and that kind of stuff? At that point in time, I was probably doing 75% conventional and 20, 25% slide. You know? Okay. And at that time, I didn't, I didn't have a, a designated slide guitar at that point in time. At that point, I was playing in standard tuning, mm. so I would just pick up a slide. But uh, also, I was a dyed-in-the-wool telly man. I had tellies that would make your mouth water today. But then, <laughs> then you could buy. I bought a. I bought a. You know, fifty-two, fifty-three broadcaster notecasters for under five hundred dollars, guys. Oh. Things were going for then. I had them from every year. You know, I had a closet. It was my telly closet. Blackguard City. <laughs> oh. And uh, and Fender amps, you know, uh, I had a wonderful Super Reverb that had extra mid range in it. Just made that telly, whatever telly I was using, sound like a million bucks. Excellent. And, uh, I later got a Gibson um, little melody maker that had a humbucker in it. Okay. Was the best sound humbucker I have ever owned. I don't know why I ever got rid of it. And I kept that up for slide and started playing more and you know with. E tuning or A tuning or whatever later. So when you're slide playing, like when you first went out to LA, who were your major influences and and how would you say how you know you had progressed up to that point as far as your slide playing today, which is majestic beyond beyond compare. Uh, where where were you at at that point in time and how much did you develop after you'd been there? You know what I mean? Yes, yeah. Um, I, well, like you, uh, probably my first telly hero was James Burton. We got to see him on television every week on the adventures of Ozzy and Harry back in the fifties and early sixties. So, and my first, uh, I was never much for learning to read music. I couldn't do it, but I did have a teacher for a short while who realized that I was abysmal at reading, but showed me how to bend strings. And he was a, James Burton fan and, you know, kind of alerted me to certain solos and how to kind of progress from that point. So it would it would have been James Burton as a telly guy and a local guy that I never got to see, but heard by standing outside of a club a couple of times was Roy Buchanan. Uh-huh. In the Philadelphia area and had, uh, had a couple of local records out that were just local I wouldn't even call them hits, but you, you know, musicians knew about them uh, in the area, and you'd always hear his name. You know, if you went up on stage and bent your strings, some other older guitar player might say, "Oh, you play in that Roy Buchanan style." <laughs> I said, "Oh yeah, I guess so." So uh, I, I stood outside of a club in Wildwood, New Jersey, when I was sixteen or seventeen, and he was doing a gig for a short time with a band called the Monkey Men. His claim to fame was they had a live monkey on stage with them. But I listened to this this string bending, you know, just like, whoa, listen to that. You know, kind right. of thing. You know? So, uh, yeah, it was amazing. So, and then Jesse Ed Davis, 
was one of the first slide guys. Him and Brian Jones were the first slide that I heard. Uh, and he was a big influence as a telly guy. And on those, um, the original Delaney and Bonnie and Friends record, there was a guy called Jerry McGee, who okay. became a good friend, as, as did uh, James and uh, Jesse at Davis. He was playing a telly, great telly guy, another amazing guy. So I'd say they were my main telly influences at that point in time. We interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle-infested conversation to give a special shout-out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, makers of the Greg Koch Signature Fluence Gristle Tone Pickup Set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. So when you when you got on, how did Ry Cooter? Kind of, I mean, I think you told kind of a funny story about being in the studio and hearing someone play slide down the down the way, and you going in, going, "Hey, that sounds pretty good," and you realize, "Oh, it's Ry." Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah that that came much later. I had met uh, had met Ry uh, on the set of. Um, Crossroads, the movie that he... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. had a friend, John Duke Logan, who played the harmonica on that soundtrack, and he invited me to come with him one day and met him there. Let's talk a little bit about some guitars. Yeah, uh, guitars, man. That's one of my three favorite subjects. <laughs> but, you know, before we, before we go into that, I just have to say, I remember the first time I heard uh the solo on like a rock i thought to myself that's not the guy in bob seger's band playing that and i remember hearing i mean not that that guy wasn't great he was great but it just didn't seem like that if he could play slide that well he'd be doing it all the time you know what i mean and i remember hearing that solo and i just it just gobsmacked me i was like who is that and lo and behold it's the mighty rick Vito. so can you tell us a little bit about how that all transpired and and that was like a one take thing wasn't it yeah, I mean uh, that was that was an amazing experience. Uh, I had uh, been in Jackson Brown's band <clears throat> for a couple of years. There again, it was very much a you were considered or, or featured as a sort of a member, you know. Sure. Um, so given a lot of creative freedom, and he gave me his Dumble amplifier. And which was in a magnificent, magnificent amplifier. Just, you know, well, you know, you know what the things are. And, uh, and I had been playing a, um, a little Les Paul TV model for slide. I'd set that up for slide. And, uh, but uh, largely playing standard tuning. Okay. Just with the string, string, thicker strings action up higher through the dumble. And so, um, Russ Kunkel, who was the drummer, uh, had done the session for Bob on a couple songs. And uh, there again, Bob asked him, excuse me, just one second. That's all right. Bob asked him if he, if, uh, he knew of a guitar player that could play solos. So he said, yeah, Rick, he was just in Jackson band for a couple, three years. And so he called me up and I went down there and met him. I had met him previously very in passing one time, but uh, uh, met him. I said, "What do you?" He said, "What do you have in mind?" 
I said, what do you have in mind? And he said, well, I got this song and I'm thinking, you know, maybe some rhythm or, you know, I don't really know what I want. So I played it. It was this kind of long drawn out thing, real long sections where solos could be. I said, well, that sounds like slide guitar to me. He said, oh no, I don't, I don't really want slide. I said, really? I said, because I really hear that. I think that would really sound good on this record. I said, how about this? Let me take one pass at it and see if you like it. <laughs> <laughs> and the song was like a rock. I hadn't even heard it. I had heard of that one time. Put it up. I got that both solos, the front and the back on the first take. Tried several more to follow. None of them had the, the thing. brain uh, spontaneity and creativity that I got on the first pass. I did have to overdub the last three chords because I didn't know where the ending was. <laughs> and the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah, a few years later, it obviously became the Chevy truck commercial and played on television for 10 years. Lord have mercy. That is so that's, cool. my, that's my most famous solo and probably session. You know, you, you, you reminded me when you mentioned Jackson Brown, uh, the, the Stevie Ray Vaughan story, because, of course, you know, a lot of people don't know that that uh, Jackson was integral in kind of getting Stevie on his way. And um, Stevie actually recorded that first record at Jackson Brown studio, if I'm not mistaken. And, yes, uh, it, and how you guys were playing at the Montreux Jazz Festival. <laughs> Would you, you mind telling that story? Because it's classic i think it's fantastic uh it actually actually started in uh in ireland jackson was friends with uh stevie's manager and jackson and i were sitting in the back of the, the tour bus that we had and this guy came up when we were talking to him and he said well who are you what are you doing now and uh he said well i'm, I'm managing uh, uh jimmy Vaughn's brother stevie ray Vaughan, you know and uh, so I had had a situation this, the year before where my, I was on a gig with the Fabulous Thunderbirds and my amp broke at Soundcheck. So I asked Jimmy if I could borrow an amp to, to play the, the gig. You know, I said, I'll be really quiet, I'll, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he wouldn't let me. So I had bad taste in my mouth for Jimmy. <laughs> So uh, anyway, uh, he said, this guy's really good, but we, 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 we can't get any um, recording time anywhere because he, he's kind of bluesy. And so Jack said, well, you know, when we get back to L.A., we're going to be taking some time off and I'll have my, my studio is open, which was a converted loft in downtown L.A. And he, you can come in there and use our amps. You can use drums, whatever you need. It's right there. So uh, he, he, this guy came and and did his record there. Getting back to Montreux, which was after this this uh, initial meeting with his manager in in Ireland, he was on the bill, and I was we did our set. And I was dead tired from come from Germany. I was really tired. I was back at the hotel. It was a beautiful hotel. I just remember the curtains being open, looking out on this lake, <laughs> stealing from music coming from down below. And I get a call from Bob Glaub, the bass player. He said, 
there's this guy that, that uh, heard us play and he really likes your play and he wants you, would you, he's doing a set in the, in the lounge. I said, who is it? He says, it's Stevie Vaughan, it's Jimmy's brother. I said, ah, oh, <laughs> brother. <laughs> I said, well, what does he sound like? He said, well, he's kind of loud. I don't know, he's kind of like Hendrix. I said, no, that, I'm not gonna go and sit in with some guy who's kind of loud who's trying to play like Jimi Hendrix. I said, you know, that's not where I'm at at all. So, hour goes by, rings again, it's Bob Glob again. Man, he's, he's really a nice guy, he really wants you to come and, and play, you know. Maybe I didn't describe him right, but at, at that time, I'm just about to fall asleep. I said, man, I can't make it, you know, I really can't make it. So, I, I, there, that night was when David Bowie heard him play, and all, everybody else in our band sat in with Jimmy, I mean Stevie, and played, and and I missed my chance to uh, to be friends with him and play with him and stuff. And uh, so I have a good story. <laughs> well, you know what? There, there's something about a good hotel room and a night off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Once I hit the sheets and turn on the TV, I'm sort of uh, in heaven. But uh, I think uh, I think he may have used my amp for for a tune or two. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about how you hooked up with the Reverend folks. And you've been using Reverend guitars for a long time. There's been several different iterations of uh, of your guitars. You mind telling us a little bit of how it started and, and how the different signature models came together and what you're currently using? I've been with them 22 years now. And uh, it came about, about 98 or 99, I was working with Bonnie Raitt again for the third time. And uh, we were going to go on a tour with Eric Clapton opening. And I went over to Jeff Ross's house. And uh, do you know Jeff? Uh, great, great guitar player in LA. He, he used to, he was one of the first guys to play a reverend that I knew of. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Real nice guy, great player. And uh, so I looked in the corner and here's this cool looking guitar. It sort of reminded me, they were doing the lipstick cover pickup. Right. You know, Sort of had a Dan Electro vibe, but it was much cooler, more substantial, played great, sounded great. And he said, well, I'll, I can contact Joe Naylor if you're interested in one. So he did. And I gave him the spiel about being in Bonnie Raitt's band and, and opening for Clapton. So he sent me on a guitar, same guitar with the lipstick cover. So when I was using it live, I realized this ain't the guitar for me. I like the guitar, but I didn't like the sound. And I, I called Joe when I got back to the States and he said, hey, no problem. We got P90, the same guitar. You can put any kind of pickups in. So he sent me a uh, slingshot with two okay. P90s. And uh, I wound up liking that a lot and uh, did an ad for them. And uh, they suggested later that um, I do a signature model, I was honored. I had my first, or one of my first solo albums came out and I had this jacket on that I had hand painted with like uh, musical notes and planets and stars and skulls and all this yeah. stuff. So he said, I wanna take your coat and we're gonna project those images onto the face of the guitar. 
And I think that'd be cool. I said, well, okay, yeah, it's your thing. So that's uh, that's what they did. That was the very first Rick Vito signature model uh, slingshot that came out. And those are so cool. And they're you you can't find those for love nor gold anymore, right? They're they're they yeah. are. They have become quite a collector's item on on eBay. If you can find them, they they usually sell for more than the other reverends of that period. They were cool. And there was a couple different color ones. There was like a black one and there was like a gold one, right? There is only a few gold ones known to exist. I'm, I'm in touch with one or two of the guys that own them, and they're not partnering with them. There was a blue one. I have a blue one. There was an all plain black one, which I had for a while, but, but let go to, to make room for more current Rick Vito signature models. These things take up space, you know, when they start coming out with colors. Right. So, yeah, uh, the black one was the most the popular one. Excellent. So were you, and you played those guitars when you were in, were you in Fleetwood Mac with those as well or no? This was uh, years after Fleetwood Mac. Okay. Uh, Fleetwood Mac was over in 91 for me. And this happened about 99. Okay. Gotcha. Although we have to probably backtrack a little bit and talk about one of the greatest guitar acquisition stories of all time, which was when you were in the hotel and you saw the guy playing a flying V in the, in the house band <laughs> at yeah. the hotel. Yeah, that was the guitar acquisition of a lifetime, for anyone's lifetime, I think. Uh, it, was, it was the last tour I did with Fleetwood Mac. It was the day before Thanksgiving. And we had an, it was an off day. We had two days off and then we we're going to do a show the day after Thanksgiving. So I asked the guy at the hotel if there was any cool blues bands or anything like that. He said, oh yeah, you got to go see such and such a band. And uh, so I got a cab. With oh, the, I thought it was at the hotel for some reason, but. No, it was, a, got in a cab, went to kind of a rough side of town, Cincinnati, and uh, went in this club, it's really cool club. Really cool band. And uh, we're at the bar, I mean, this, this friend of mine, and I looked over, and the guitar player was sitting down, kind of hunched over his guitar. But after a while, I started noticing, ah, he's playing an Explorer. And I said, that's a, that's a real Explorer. And I started freaking out, you know, and I waited till they went on a break, and and I, I went up to him, and, and uh, I said, how long have you had that? And how is it someone hasn't tried to buy it from you? And he said, man, I, I bought it new in 59 or 60. And he said, um, everybody's always talking about buying this guitar and no one has ever showed me any money. I said, well, look, I said, and I'll be perfectly honest with you. If selling that guitar would break your heart, we should stop this conversation now. But if the money would do you any good, I'm having probably the best year of my life and I'd like to buy that guitar under the conditions that you're okay with it. So why don't you give me your number? Think about it for a day. I'll call you after dinner tomorrow after you have Thanksgiving dinner and see how you feel about it. So that's what we did. Give me his number. Next day, everybody had dinner and such. Called him around 7.30 at night. He said, uh, yeah, I thought about it. He said, you know, I was in an accident this past year, a car accident. I could use the money. I was thinking about selling it. 
but I'll sell it to you under one condition. I said, what's that? He said, the condition is you got to buy the Flying V that I bought at the same time with the Explorer. <laughs> so this guy had both the, the Explorer and 58 and 58 Flying V. Oh. And uh, we worked out a price and uh, he came over the next day. Well, the, the V looked like it had been <clears throat> sitting in a, a moldy puddle of, of rainwater for a couple of years. I wasn't even sure it was playable. It was all rusty and I wasn't sure the pickups worked, but I took a chance and brought, we were able to bring it back to life just by, without even refinishing it or anything. It wound up being really a fabulous guitar. And, uh, that, that was the story. So they have big old necks on them, right? They're yeah, pretty big. big but, you know, the mojo was just oozing out of these two guitars. This guy had played that guitar from 1958 or 59 through 1990. And uh, that was his thing, you know. And then how long in, in turn did you hold on to him for? 20 years. Oh, that's a good run. Yes. Did you gig with him a bunch or is it more just cool to have him? I gig, yeah, I used to, uh, when I lived in Burbank, California area, uh, after, after uh, Fleetwood Mac, doing my own thing. I uh, had a weekly gig and I used to play them there. And, uh, but never took them on the road. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and you've got a pretty awesome 58 Les Paul too, we might, we might say. I do. I, uh, it, it, I, I bought my first one when I was with Mayall. And my brother and I had to, he, I had to talk my brother into going in half as an investment ah. <laughs> that I would play. <laughs> and so I had that one for a few years and I had to, I had to sell it when I had the uh, first child, as you know how that goes. Indeed. And uh, later got a, when I was able to afford one, I got second one from Norman, Norman Jerry Guitar. Then I got a third. So I had, at one point in time, I had two Sunburst Les Pauls, and they were beautiful, super clean. One was uh, sort of flamey, the other one, no flame, but pristine. Uh, and then I got a call from Norm's partner one day, and he said, I think you ought to get down here. The guy's got just brought a Les Paul in here to, to you know, Norm's buying his collection out. So he came in, and I, he, he had his guitar, and I saw it. and. Uh, it was the one for me. It, it just had the mojo and it wasn't this clean, but it had the sound, it had the feel, everything I liked. So I sold the other two and I got that one. And I've had that for, you know, a good 25 years now. And that's, that's the guitar that I'll, I'll never get rid of that one. So in like the mid seventies, what was a, what was a Summers Les Paul going for? Like five grand ish, or what? What was the? I kind of, I kind of uh, messed myself up on that. I wrote an article on Norman's store that appeared in 1976 okay. in, in Guitar Player magazine. Back then, mind you, there was only George Groon, maybe one or two guys in New York, and Norman doing vintage guitars. 
maybe a few low key guys, but it wasn't a business right. like it is now. There's nothing like that. So I wrote an article. And one of the one of the uh, lines in my article read, "Who would have ever believed that a vintage Sunburst Les Paul guitar today would fetch the astronomical price of two thousand ah. dollars?" <laughs> A year later, I had to pay five thousand dollars from Norm for the guitar that I could have got for two thousand the year before. That's how quickly that article made the business—not only his business, but the awareness of that—take off. Unbelievable! So it's your fault. Feed <laughs> <laughs> myself. Uh, it is wild. So your current Reverend model is a gorgeous specimen. I have one of them, my own self. Oh yeah, you got the gray one. Yes, and I did put I did put the eyes as yours does too. I, I did modify it to have a push pull out of phase switch on it, which is cool. I recently did the very same thing, my friend. Yes, there's something about that duck walky little quack thing that's fun to have, isn't it? Yeah, it's fun. That a little extra sound, a little little push of the button, and there you are. Yes. You know, the first time I ever heard that sound, and a lot of people don't realize it, but James Burton's Telecaster that he used with Rick Nelson had that sound by accident in the middle position. And his uh-huh. folk that he took on Traveling Man, you could look it up on YouTube, is, is out of phase. It's a beautiful sound. I'll have to check that out. So it was, his, it was in his guitar by accident. I wonder if Albert King's was by accident as well. I'm sure it was. All those the guys that assembled the pickups sometimes put the magnets in backwards or they, they did the wiring funny and that's what happened. And all of a sudden folks said, hey, that sounds good. Yeah. And away they went. Yeah, amazing. So do you have uh, another record in the works coming up here? I, I enjoyed your last record immensely. It was fun hearing those songs when we did it. For folks who don't know, we did a tour where uh, Rick played with uh, my son Dylan on drums and Toby on, on organ, and then I would do a set, and then we'd play all together, and it was fabulous. And we're hopefully going to do more of it once this this pestilence yeah. subsides. Yeah, uh, yeah that, that was a lot of fun. And, absolutely. Uh, well, to answer your question, um, I do have some things in the can, and I do have a phone full of new songs, ideas that I must sit down soon, and I'm planning to once I get this computer thing worked out and start putting that. Putting, what really works for me when you work by yourself, uh, if you don't get the chance to record your songs live, what I often do is start with a, just a drum beat, and I'll put the... the changes to the song together, at least in the instrumental section. And then an idea for the lyrics will come to me and will turn into a song. So uh, I'm anxious to get back to that process. How about you? You've got, uh, you always recording and stuff. Well, we, we had a, um, uh, most of a record in the can and we were actually going to go out and um, out to LA. We were recording at uh, Josh Smith is a nice, studio at his house and we went in there to just to track a couple songs to see how it would go and it went great and uh we thought well this will be fun we'll we'll come back out finish our old, our other tunes that we kind of need just a couple of dubs on it and, and finish it out there and then 
you know, uh, everything was on lockdown. So that would have been the middle of March. So we ended up not doing it. So we have a bunch of tunes ready for that, but then I've written a bunch of more songs. Um, and then I've been working up a bunch of, you know, what this, it, what's been interesting being on the lockdown is that, you know, and I've got to do four of these live feeds a week. So to keep it fresh, I'm, I'm not only coming up with new songs, but I'm kind of looking back at my back catalog, which you never really get to do because you're always worrying about the next record and doing the next thing. And, you know, and, and curtailing whatever you're doing to that particular lineup that you're working with at the time. And I realized, got all these old tunes that I never really gave the, you know, their, their proper, um, I don't know, um, uh, context to. So I'm finding I play them different now and the arrangements are different now. So it's been kind of fun uh, approaching them in that way as well. So there's a bunch of different things in the works, but it's, it's been fun. I've been, you know, we've been, very lucky that no one's having any health issues here. Uh, you know, no one's lost any, you know, I mean, I did lose tours that we've had to postpone or reschedule. Uh, but a lot of other things that I do have it, you know, that are still going. And so, you know, we're not really, you know, hurting in a financially, thank God at this point in time. So it's been a very creative time for me to just be able to practice and work out some stuff and keep my chops up and learn some different things and, you know, all that other kind of stuff. So it's, uh, it's going to be fun once the pestilence subsides to go out and start doing some gigs, but no one really knows when that's going to be because even though things open up, do people want to go to gigs, you know, and be around a lot of other people? And and then, the you know, if there's a second wave, you know, you never know what's going to happen. So I'm cautiously optimistic. In the meantime, I'm just playing and making sure I have, uh, keep inspired and come up with some some stuff that I find halfway decent. So hopefully other people will as well. So we'll see what happens. Well, I can only imagine, I mean, having had a little bit of a glimpse into the, into the, the mindset of Greg uh, <laughs> and hearing how that comes out in your Salvador Dali-esque there's got to be some amazing stuff brewing that's all i can oh say. well thank you you know what i'm having fun let's put it that way it's been fun playing with dylan we've been just doing like guitar and drum things so Ooh, yeah uh, it's, it's great been... it sounds great uh, the things that i've watched on youtube and all how do you feel about this here's something i'm toying with i've got 10 solo records that came out some of the earlier ones have songs on them <clears throat> that I always wished I did a little bit different. Right. And so they were, they're not just songs that I've had in a back catalog. They're songs that I've recorded before. And I'm thinking about re-recording some of these. How do you feel like, do you think that's a viable thing to do creatively? I think it is because, you know, the bottom line is, is that I think works, I think music is always a work in progress. You know what I mean? It's always a, you know, it's, it's, it's always evolving. So you recorded it one way years ago, the way you would do it now would be an entirely different thing. And, and the thing is that a lot of these songs, you know, there's going to be a whole new audience that has never even heard those songs. So it becomes immediately, <laughs> you know, so I, I mean, I've got, you know, tons of old records as well. And people are like, you know, it's so bizarre and, and it's interesting you know i always say if only there was a device that people could you know access all the information and music that ever was and you know you're a fan of someone i'm going to look into their back catalog and for whatever reason a lot a lot of people just don't 
So there's a lot of people that may have bought your last record and think that's the only thing you've ever done, even though, (laughs) even though with just the very smallest amount of research they could find, but you know, people are busy and whatever is right here is right there. And so you could easily put out the same tunes in a different way. People like, this is great. What do you mean? There's another version. (laughs) So I just think it's, it's all part of, you know, I, I, you know, I, I look at someone like I'm not comparing what I do to, in any way, shape or form to Led Zeppelin, but I'm just saying that was a band that was around for 10 years and it's really not all that many songs. And Jimmy Page is, of course, you know, he, he is the curator of that library of stuff that was around for, for a 10 year period of time. And most artists keep on churning out and have these massive catalogs of stuff, but of course, you know, they weren't, you know, exposed to the public in the way that, you know, a lot of the art, you know, massive artists were. And so all the stuff is still fresh that deserves to be heard. So I, I say, let the good times roll and unleash the fury. Yeah, yeah I think you're, I think, I think I will. I will. So uh, I like it all. Well, I look forward to hopefully doing some, some gigs in the future so that we can do our thing. That was a lot of fun. I think it's a good, uh, I think it's a good pairing as well. It's just a very fun evening of music. You know, it, it, it is, it was a good pairing because we're just different enough, but we have, we're just different enough to sound different when we each do our set, but that yet when we come together, we both like a lot of the same stuff that we can convene right. on. And, uh, and it really did work out very well. Uh, I look forward to doing more of that. We shall indeed, my friend. Well, listen, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. It was a, it was a lot of fun to hear those stories again. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's all the time I spent in the, in the car talking about the old days uh, <laughs> came in handy today. <laughs> <laughs> Riding in the minivan. Yeah, yeah, the, the noble minivan took us over <laughs> many miles. That's right. Yeah. Well, Rick Vito, thank you so much for spending time with us on our Wildwood at Home series here. And uh, I hope to see you very soon, my friend. And stay safe down there in Tennessee. What town are you in again? Is it? Uh, I'm in uh, Hendersonville, right? Part of Franklin, Tennessee. Franklin. There, that's it. Sport. Yes, indeed. Well, you take yeah. care down there. Great to see you. And uh, look forward to seeing you again in person soon. Say hi to the family. You too, my friend. Take it easy. While with the family, too. You got it. Thank you so much, folks, for tuning in. Special thank you to Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, and the Mighty Fishman Transducers for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed yourself, ladies and gentlemen, please subscribe and review so that people can get the word out that this is worth experiencing. Can you dig it? Thanks again. We'll see you soon, or you'll hear me soon.